I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. I want to start a series this morning on, on something that uh, we've preached many, many times. It's really one of those series uh, or subjects that uh, ought to be taught once a year. But we don't get around to it that often. But I want to teach on steps to answer prayer. Ephesians 6.18, <clears throat> Paul, inspired by the Holy Ghost, says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Notice that phrase, the first phrase in the first part of the verse, praying always with all prayer. Praying always with all prayer. Other translations say all kinds of prayer or all manners of prayer. And the Bible's trying to get across to us, Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost, that there are a number of different ways to pray, different types of prayer to fit different situations. One thing that, uh, that the church has made a mistake doing, and it's been going on for hundreds of years, um, most Christians think that all prayer is prayer. They just think that, that prayer is just a general or generic thing, and it all works the same way, and many people follow what they are trying to follow, what they think Jesus set out as the pattern to pray when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prayed that the, this cup, he said, Father, if you were willing, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Well, a lot of the church world has thought that that's how we ought to pray every prayer. Church I grew up in, wonderful people, lovely people, denominational folks, operating in all the light that they had. They would pray every prayer, if it be thy will. Every prayer, if it be thy will. Well, folks, there's a lot of other times that Jesus prayed that we don't have any record that he said, if it be thy will. Jesus was praying a specific and a certain type of prayer that we might call the prayer of consecration or dedication. He was dedicating himself to the will of God, knowing the, the, uh, the anguish of the cross that was set before him. But it's impossible to pray the prayer of faith by saying, if it be thy will. Because faith begins where the will of God is known. If you don't know what God's will is on a subject, then there's no way you can pray in faith about it. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. The preceding verses in Romans chapter 10 tell us that there's no way we can believe on Jesus if we haven't heard of him. There's no way that we can accept him if we haven't heard because faith is produced by the hearing of the word. So there's a lot of people that are operating in the dark because they haven't taken the time to find out what God's word or God's will is on the subject. And so they have no means, they have no way, they have no possibility to reach out and receive what God has already provided for them through the sacrifice of Jesus. So this is telling us, Ephesians 6.18 is telling us that there are all different kinds of prayer, just like there are all different kinds of sports. Wouldn't it be silly if we tried to play baseball by basketball rules? Well, in the same way, different prayers have different, or different ways to pray, different kinds of prayers, have different rules that govern them. James 5 says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The effectual fervent prayer means from the heart prayed effectively. Well, if you can pray effectively, then you can pray ineffectively. 
And that's where most of the church lives, praying ineffectively. Now, I want you to also turn with me to John chapter 15. Jesus is talking about how things will be after he goes to the cross. This is the last night he spent with his disciples. This is at the Last Supper that John gives us an eyewitness account or eyewitness testimony of. Notice what Jesus said in verse 7. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, we don't say ye and thee and thou and all that kind of stuff today. So anytime it's talking about or uses the word ye, it's talking about you. And notice how much of this prayer depends on you and not God. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done for you. Notice God's happy with this. Verse 7 tells us, Jesus said, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Your prayers being answered, and this is just one specific type of prayer, it's the prayer of faith. Your prayers being answered has more to do with you than it does God. That's why all the qualifications are about you and not God. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. God wants your prayers answered. He wants you to have answers to your prayer more than you want answers to your prayer. Well, then why doesn't God just make it happen? Because it depends on you and not him. So if we break down these principles, scriptural principles, to pray effectively or how to pray effectively or how to get your prayers answered, step number one has to be decide what you want from God. Now, I know that sounds simple, and it is probably oversimplified by just stating it that way because it's easy for us to pop off with just anything and everything that we want God to do for us based on how we feel at the moment. But that's not what I mean when it says decide what you want from God. Notice this prayer that's talked about in John 15, 7 and 8 is not you praying for somebody else. Now, there are times where we can pray the prayer of faith for other people, but not always. But you can always pray the prayer of faith for yourself, and you can always get an answer. Now, folks, if God is who he says that he is, if he never changes, if he's always good and only good, if he is who he says he is, then according to the Bible, you and I have been made able. It has been provided and arranged through the work of Jesus for us on our behalf so that we never go again without an unanswered prayer. It's not only possible, it's definitely and defined and, and identified as the will of God that you bat a thousand in prayer. Well, I don't know many people that are doing that. Do you? Church world at large doesn't. I saw a, a survey done, it's been several years ago now, but the question was, 
do you believe in prayer? And there were something like 1,000 or 1,200 people, Christians, that were um, asked this question, do you believe in prayer? And overwhelmingly, everybody said, yeah. I mean, it was like 85 or 90% of the people that were polled said, yes, they believe in prayer. Then they followed up with a question, have you ever had a prayer answered? And that percentage dropped down to about 25 or 30%. Well, I wonder what people are doing trying to believe in something that's not working for them. But unfortunately, I think that's how too many Christians live. They don't have the answers. They don't seek the answers. They don't uh, uncover the answers to whatever their situation is. But they just keep going along, going through the motions, hoping someday, somehow, God will answer something. Well, you can readily understand how people come up with the idea that you can't ever tell what God's going to do. But the problem's not on God's end. The problem's on ours. So Jesus said, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will. Well, you're going to have to decide what you will. You're going to have to decide what it is that you really want from your heart. Jesus said, and it shall be done unto you, and God gets glorified from that. So if we're going to establish principles for getting our prayers answered, we're going to have to decide, number one, what we want from God. And I suggest that you be specific. It's always amazed me. I heard Brother Hagin teach it for many years. But then I found the same thing to be true for me as well. It always amazes me how people just pray generally about stuff. But they're not specific about what they want. There have been times where I've asked people when they were praying, while they were praying, during a prayer meeting and such, what are you praying for? And the answers come back something like, well, I don't know. Well, if we don't know what we're praying about, how are we going to know when God answers the prayer? But again, that's the way a lot of Christians live, I guess, just thinking that God will bring to pass whatever he wants in your life. Some people will say, yeah, but God knows what I need. That's true. But Jesus, in teaching on prayer and God's care and provision for us, said, your heavenly Father knows what you have need of before you ask him. So he still wants us to ask. So just knowing that God knows what you need isn't enough. Folks, you need to understand something, and that is God does not answer prayer based on need. Let me say that again. God does not answer prayer based on need. How bad you need something does not move God. Faith moves God. Prayers are answered, and again, we're talking about this one specific kind of prayer, the prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is answered based on faith, not need. Some people have the idea that because they're in such desperate situations, such desperate circumstances, that God will have to help them. But there were a lot of people in desperate circumstances that came to Jesus, and Jesus required faith of them. That's why your prayer getting answered has more to do with you than it does God. So if we're going to decide what we want from God, the next part of this first step is find scriptures that promise you what you want. Find scriptures that promise you what you want. And get those scriptures firmly fixed in your heart. 
and not just in your mind. Whenever somebody comes to me, I've done it from the time that we started the church. I still do it now. I tell people I do it, so you should be fairly warned. Whenever somebody comes and wants me to pray for them, somebody wants me to come and agree with them, or whatever the case is, I'll always ask the same question, and that is, what scriptures are you standing on for your promise or for your answer? And so often, people will say, well, I, I don't have any in particular. Well, that's the kind of success they get in the prayer life. They receive nothing in particular and don't understand why it won't work. Turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Find scriptures that promise you what you want from God and put those scriptures on the inside of your heart, not just in your mind. For this purpose, to be ready to stand against the devil when he comes. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 6, notice verse 12. Paul's writing to Timothy, his son in the faith. Timothy is the pastor of the church at Ephesus at this time that Paul writes to him. <clears throat> He's the pastor of the most famous church in the world. He's probably the pastor, or he is the pastor of what is probably the biggest church in the world in Ephesus. And notice what Paul said, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. He said, fight the good fight of faith. Folks, if you don't learn anything else, learn this. Faith is about fighting. Now, you're not fighting with people. The Bible tells us we don't war with flesh and blood. It doesn't even say fight about doctrine. It doesn't say fight about methods of baptism. It says fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, how is it that faith is identified as a good fight? Because faith will always work if you'll hold fast to it. If you won't turn loose, if you'll follow these steps diligently, Nothing much works if you aren't diligent at it. If you'll follow these steps faithfully, you can get an answer to your prayer every time. Well, that's what makes the faith fight a good fight. You're guaranteed victory if you'll do your part. No matter what it looks like, no matter where you came from, no matter how, how desperate the situation may be, you can win every time. But so often people will hear things taught from the word They'll hear something belongs to them, healing, financial blessing, whatever, that Jesus provided for us along with or as a part of, inclusive of, salvation. And they don't realize that they're in for a fight. Notice what Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. Now, he doesn't mean eternal life from the standpoint of getting saved. If Timothy isn't saved as a pastor of the church at Ephesus, They've got some big problems. He's not talking about getting saved. He's talking about laying hold of everything that belongs to us because of the eternal life that Jesus won for us through his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood. So the Holy Ghost inspires Paul to give us a principle whereby we can understand how everything works. You're going to have to fight a fight, the faith fight, to lay hold on what Jesus provided for you. You're going to have to fight the good fight of faith to lay hold on healing. You're going to have to fight the good fight of faith to lay hold on financial provision. You're going to have to fight the good fight of faith to take hold of and receive anything and everything that Jesus provided for us. We know that we're saved by faith. 
By grace are you saved through faith, Ephesians 2, 8 says. So everything is a fight when it comes to faith. Everything is a fight. And I know that doesn't sound real inviting. And a lot of people check out right there. Well, I don't want to fight. I'm not willing to fight. I'm not willing to stand in faith. And that's what the faith fight is, is to resist doubt and stand strong based on what God's word says. And a lot of people give up because they just don't want to experience that. But Jesus told us the same thing too. Matthew chapter 11, verse 17, Jesus said, from John the Baptist up until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. What violence is he talking about? What force is he talking about? He's talking about the violent position of refusing to be robbed by the devil of what belongs to us. He's talking about the force of faith that is necessary to receive anything and everything from God. So if, you're gonna, if you expect your prayer life and you're receiving things from God to be a real nice, gentle, float down the streams of life on flowery beds of ease, you got another thought coming. And that's why some people give up. Some people, Jesus told us this when he was talking about the, the parable of the sower sowing the word, Mark chapter 4. He says sometimes, some people, in some people's lives, the devil comes and attacks them. And they give up on the faith that they started with. And folks, there is always one underlying theme as far as the devil's work is concerned. Paul wrote to the church and said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. Well, Paul wasn't ignorant of them. But too many Christians are. They don't understand what Satan is trying to do. They don't understand his end game. And so they don't know what to expect. They don't prepare themselves with the word of God to get an answer to their prayer. Jesus, in explaining the parable of the sower sowing the word, starts off and says, the sower sows the word, and these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But Satan comes immediately to take the word out of their hearts. Folks, that's a principle that will work and apply to every situation we encounter in life. The devil is after one thing, and that is to take the word out of your heart. To take the word out of your spirit. Well, how's he going to be able to do that? He can't do that unless we give up on the word. But that's why we need to put the word on the inside of us. I think a lot of times we pray too quickly. We see a need, we're motivated by that need, so we just jump out there and say, Father, I believe for you to meet this need. But the better way to go, now I know there are some emergency situations which, that we have to take care of right away. I know there are some things like that, but those are generally the, or usually the exceptions rather than the rule. It works best for us when we take time and prepare ourselves with the word. Remind ourselves what the Word of God says. You may already know. You may be familiar with those scriptures. But it's good to go over them again and solidify them in your heart or in your spirit. Because that's what the devil's after. He's after the Word of God that you put in your heart. He's after the Word of God that you plant and deposit in your spirit. And it's interesting that Jesus said, even with the wayside, the types of, there were four types of ground that he described in that uh, parable of the sower sowing the word in Mark 4. 
even the first type of ground says that the word of God was sown, had been sown in the hearts of that type of people. And Satan comes immediately to take it out. He comes immediately to take it out. The implication, folks, is that since the word of God was sown in those hearts, if Satan hadn't been able to remove it, then they could have been victorious. They could have received what God had for them. Now, there's one and only one way for you to put, your, put the word of God in your heart. There's only one way, and we find that way in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 Joshua is taking over for Moses, which are some pretty big shoes to fill. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain and everybody saw the storm and the lightnings and the fire falling from heaven and the smoke and the thunder and everything else that was taking place while Moses was on top of that mountain, Mount Sinai. And they concluded that nobody could live through that. But he did. He stood face to face with God, the Bible says. And Joshua has to follow him up. I don't know about you, but I'd been a little bit timid about that. So God had to tell him some things. He had to tell him. He had to reveal to him. I'll be with you just like I was with Moses. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. And he commanded him to have courage. Be strong and of good courage. Now, again, I think people misunderstand the way God operates. If God tells Joshua, which he did that no man will be able to stand before him all the days of his life. Why does he need courage? That would have just been the time to rejoice and say, bless God, I've got it made. But nobody being able to stand before Joshua all the days of his life had everything to do with Joshua's strength and his courage to go stand against the enemy. One of my favorite stories in the Bible is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Where the Lord says, the battle is not yours, it's mine. And I think one of the things that appeals to me about that story from a natural standpoint is that God said he'd do all the fighting. But he still required them to go out against their enemies the next day. Now, I don't know about you, but I would much prefer for God to just do my fighting while I'm laying on the couch. Don't worry, I'll give him glory for it. I'll praise him for the answer. I'll give him all the credit for it. But let's just skip that part where I have to go out against the enemy. But it's never that way. Never that way. So Joshua chapter 1, verse 8, here's what God tells him to do to be strong and of good courage. Here's what he tells him to do. Here's what he instructs him to do that will bring victory in every case, in every situation. He says, this book of the law, that's all the word of God they had back then. So he's talking about God's word. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. Shall not depart out of your mouth. Shall not depart out of your mouth. How do you keep words from not departing out of your mouth? As soon as you say something, it's gone. How do you keep it from departing out of your mouth? You say it again. Yeah, but then that goes away. So you say it again. And then when that leaves your lips, you say it again. 
and again and again and again. Now notice what he wants him to do and why. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth. The word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Notice what God defines meditation as. Speaking the word over and 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 over. And over and over. Are you getting anointed yet? Do you see the point? He's saying meditation is speaking the word into your own heart, into your own spirit. Now, sometimes people get uh, all bugged about the word meditate, and they think of Eastern religion type stuff where somebody's sitting in a lotus position with their eyes closed humming or something, or whatever they do, I don't know. But meditation, Bible meditation, is not about emptying your mind. It seems to me a lot of Christians have been successful at that, however. But that's not what Bible meditation is. It's not emptying your mind of anything. It's filling your spirit with the Word of God. Now, that will certainly affect your mind. Because the more of you, the Word of God you put or speak into your spirit, the more you will begin to think in line with what God's Word says. So meditation, defined as by the Scripture, defined by God himself, is to speak the word of God into your own heart. Now, you may remember over in Mark chapter 4, verse 26, again, where Jesus is explaining to his disciples about the, the parable of the sower sowing the word. And that's such an important story because Jesus said it's the key to unlock the mysteries of all the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He said, if you understand this parable, you'll be able to understand everything there is about the kingdom of God. That means you'll be able to take hold of everything that Jesus has purchased for us and provided for us. And Mark chapter 4, verse 26, says this. Jesus said this. He said, the whole of the kingdom of God is as if a man would plant seed in the ground. Now, the ground he's just talked about is the heart, the human heart, the human spirit. So he says, the whole of the kingdom of God is about speaking God's word into your own spirit. He says the guy rises every morning, goes to bed at night, goes about his daily activities, his daily life, and the words sown in his heart produces, he doesn't even know how. That means every situation you and I encounter for ourselves, now again, it doesn't apply to everybody else, or it doesn't apply to us praying for everybody else is what I mean. It applies to everybody that takes hold of it. But where our situations are concerned, every one of those situations can be turned to victory by speaking the word into your heart. Every one. Every one. James said it this way. James says that a man that's able to control his tongue, he uses the word bridle, but he's talking about controlling it like we control horses by putting bits in their mouths. He said a man that can, learns to control his tongue can control his whole body, can control everything about his flesh. It all comes down to the same thing, and that is speaking the Word of God, saying what God's Word says. Now, there are going to be situations that we encounter in life where, we, where the Word of God and what the Word of God says 
is in direct conflict to the circumstances that we're experiencing. So we're going to have to make a choice. What are we going to say? We're going to talk about what's going on in our lives. We're going to talk about what circumstances are around us. Or are we going to talk about what God says? Well, the way to victory is to say what God says. Clearly, and the modern church proves this often enough, clearly you can say whatever you want to. And it doesn't have to be God's word. But if speaking God's words bring victory, what does speaking the devil's words bring? Defeat every time. And that's how the devil's trying to take the word out of your heart. He's trying to get you to say what he says and not what God's word says. So back to Joshua, this book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Say it over and over again to yourself, day and night. That means just as I said, meditation is about speaking the word over and over and over and kept going. We're going to have to get to the place where we've spoken the word into our own heart way past the annoying level. Way past the level where we think we've done it enough. God said, day and night belong to meditating in the word. Day and night belong to speaking the word. Now, the rest of your time is yours. But day and night belong to meditating in the word. Now, why do we want to do that? Well, let's keep reading verse 8. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that or so that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. James said the doer of the word is blessed in his deed. That means we'll be blessed of God to the degree that we do act on or live the word of God. Well, how are we going to know what to live on or what to live by? That's why we speak what God's word says. It identifies to us how we're supposed to live. It identifies to us what the word of God says so that we can act on it. It doesn't do any good just to know that the word says something. James talked about being a hearer of the word versus being a doer of the word. He said, be not a hearer of the word only. He said, those people deceive themselves. It's about doing the word. Folks, it's not enough to know that the Bible talks about tithing. It's not enough to know that the Bible talks about giving. You've got to be a tither and a giver if you're going to have financial blessings work for you. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. As soon as you talk about people tithing, as soon as you talk about people giving, everything gets real quiet. I don't know if people are afraid we're going to take another offering or what. But that's not the point. The point is, it's being a doer of the word that brings the blessings of God's word into reality in your life. This book of the law, this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after you become a doer of the word, for then you, thou, you shall make your way prosperous, and you shall have good success. So to get what's going on, remember the context of this. God's telling Joshua, I'll be with you just like I was with Moses, and no man will be able to stand before you. 
all the days of your life. You'll defeat every enemy. You'll lead the children of Israel into the promised land. They'll take possession of what God wanted them to have all along. And he's telling Joshua, my power is with you. My strength is with you. My victory is with you. But it's only by meditating in the word to become a doer of the word that you make your way prosperous. God didn't even say, I'll make your way prosperous. God didn't even say, I'll bring you into good success. He said, that's your job and mine. The word will do the work if we work it. And it'll bring us into good success. It'll bring us into abundance. It'll bring us into the fullness of everything that Jesus died for us to have. But you have to work it. Now, here's where a lot of Christians mess up, I think, too. is because they're asking God to prosper them. They're asking God to give them good success. We're trying to put over on God what he just told us was our responsibility. It's amazing how many times believers are trying to get God to do what he told them to do. And they're trying to do what God said he'd do. And that never works. God said, cast your care over on the Lord. Casting the hold of your care over on him, for he cares for you. We try to get people, or people try to get God to take our cares. But he won't. He'll catch them if you'll cast them over on him. But you have to give them up. The Bible says that we increase by giving. Luke 6, 38, give and it'll be given unto you. Good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over shall men give unto your bosom. But so many times people are trying to take and hold on to what they have. And they don't realize that they're robbing themselves of God's plan of increase. You know, a good rule of thumb, folks, is whatever the world says do, do the opposite. Because there are things about the kingdom of God that don't seem to fit in our situations. They seem to be actions or directing us to take actions that'll bring us into more trouble and not deliver us and give us victory. And clearly our attitudes and, and our positions toward the word is of vital importance. Think about it like this. God said concerning the tithe, bring all the tithe into the storehouse and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, if I will not open unto you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there is not room enough to receive. If that were a formula, banks would tithe. If that were a formula that works every time, no matter what, then unsaved people would have figured out the formula. And they would give money to churches or to organizations, Christian works and so forth, not because they want to help, not because they want to do good, but so that they can make a better return on their money. But it doesn't just work because somebody tries to work a formula. It only works when you do it with the right heart. Or let's say it this way. It only works when you mix faith with it. So what does the devil do? 
Well, in this particular area, the devil tries to convince people that tithing was an Old Testament thing. Okay? We first learned about it in the Old Testament. Some people will say tithing was fulfilled by Jesus when he fulfilled the law. Well, tithing wasn't part of the law. Abraham, Abraham paid tithes 450 some odd years. Paid them to Melchizedek some 450 years before the law of Moses ever came around. So it can't be part of the law. But people get all bent out of shape. They convince themselves that what the Bible says about God's way of increase is not the way to go. Folks, let me give you a piece of advice. Always remember this. God is smarter than man. <laughs> and whatever plan or idea or fiction that man comes up with to discount the word of God will always fail. It always will fail. It'll always fail. It's not a matter of if it will, it's just a matter of when will it. So God told Joshua that the way to have victory before all of his enemies, the way to, to make sure that no enemy would stand before him with any greater degree of success than he stood before Moses is to be a doer of the word. To speak the word of God into your own heart. To say what God's word says so that you'll know how to act on the word. Now, some people will say, well, God doesn't want everybody to have success. Well, then he sure made a mistake telling us how to do it. He lays out clearly for everybody to see. This is the method. This is the way that you have good success. This is the way to bring prosperity into your life. Meditate in the word and do it. That's God's plan for success. And if he didn't want everybody to have it, if he didn't want everybody to be successful, why in the world did he tell us how to do it? They act like God never told Joshua anything other than don't worry, I'll take care of it. I'll make you to be whoever I want you to be. Because that's the way so many people are trying to live. Whatever God wants me to have, whatever his will for my life is, he'll just make sure that it comes around. Well, it never comes around. Because like I said before, God doesn't move based on need. He moves according to your faith. He moves according to your faith. Now, after we've put the word of God, we've decided what we want, back to the steps of prayer. We've decided what we want from the Lord, and we found scriptures that promises those things. And we put those scriptures in our heart and prepare ourselves against when the devil comes. Everything is designed for the devil to steal the word of God from your heart. Every doubt, every fear he brings against you is designed to get you to doubt God. But if you know what the word of God is, if you know what the word of God says concerning your situation, then you can defeat him every time. Turn with me over to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, notice verse 13. Uh, well, what is it? Verse 14. John says, and this is the confidence that we have in him. 
that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if, literally since, we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. Now here John is talking about one type of prayer. He's talking about the prayer of faith. The prayer that receives from God. The prayer that changes things. The prayer that calls things that be not as though they are. Notice what John said. Notice the way he said it. He said, this is our confidence. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Well, what is the will of God if not the word of God? Isn't the word of God a revelation of God's will? Isn't it the only source that we have that shows us how God is and what God does? Well, then how could it be anything other than his will? The word of God is what reveals the will of God to us. The word of God is what shows us God's attitude toward sickness and disease. The word of God is what shows God's attitude toward lack and poverty. The word of God shows us what he sent Jesus to accomplish for us. So if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And since we know he hears us, we know we have the answer. Now, folks, that doesn't sound like a hit and miss proposition to me, does it you? Then we'll paraphrase some of this. If we ask according to his word, if we pray the word, if we remind God of what his word says about our circumstance and our situation, then he hears us and we have the answers that we desire. We have the victory that the Bible tells us is ours. It all comes down to the word, folks. It all comes down to the word. We're going to have to put the word of God on the inside of us to such a degree that we're ready to use that word against the devil when he comes. Remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil after the 40 days in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, every time the devil brought a temptation, Jesus answered with the word. Isn't it a good thing Jesus didn't have to go look up the scrolls to find out what to do and what to answer? No, he was prepared ahead of time. He had put the word of God on the inside of him. And he used the scripture as a weapon, or certainly as a shield. Paul identifies the, the uh, shield of faith, uses the illustration of faith as a shield, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Well, doesn't that paint a picture for you of the devil trying to attack you? And you defending against him? That's exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness. He answered every time, it is written. He knew what God's word says. Now, folks, Jesus was the son of God. He was without sin. He had laid aside his heavenly power and glory, the Bible says. But Jesus found the effective weapon against the enemy's attack to be the word of God spoken from his mouth. Why should we expect anything else? Why should we expect our means of victory or our defense to be anything else? Jesus provided for us an example for how we should act and how we should operate when the devil attacks us too. He spoke the word. He spoke the word. He spoke the word. Now, since we've taken step one, we've decided what we want from God. We found scriptures that covered our case. 
we put those scriptures into our heart and not just in our minds that we may use them against the devil when he attacks. Now we're ready to pray. That brings us to step two. Step two of how to get your prayers answered is identified in Mark eleven twenty four. Whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. The second step is ask God for what you want, what you found scripture for, and believe that you receive it when you pray. Believe that you receive it when you pray. Brother Hagin told a story about a guy, a pastor in the church in Texas somewhere that had had diabetes for 30 years. Over a period of 14 years, 14 of those 30 years, Brother Hagin held seven different meetings in his church. The shortest meeting was 10 days. The longest meeting was three weeks. And this pastor was telling Brother Hagin in the year that he retired from pastoring the church, he had been there for 42 years. He told Brother Hagin how that he received healing from his diabetes. And Brother Hagin said, well, that's wonderful. How'd you do it? He said, well, I finally, it finally dawned on me what you were preaching. It finally dawned on me what Jesus said. It finally dawned on me that I had to believe that I received healing for the diabetes before I have it. Now, for 14 years, he heard the word preached. He heard Brother Hagin teach on faith. He heard Mark eleven twenty four. Dozens of times, maybe hundreds of times. But it never occurred to him. Good man, loved God. Brother Hagin said he's one of the best pastors he ever met in his life. But it didn't dawn on him. He said, one day, I got the revelation on it. He said, I saw that what I was trying to do is have my healing before I believed it. I wanted to see the change in my body before I believed it was done. Now, remember, the prayer of faith is the prayer that changes things. It's the prayer that calls things that be not as though they are. He said, so I started saying, I believe I received healing from sugar diabetes. And the devil would come and told him time after time, you don't have it. You don't have it. And the pastor answered back, that's right, Mr. Devil, I don't have it. It's my jo not my job to have it. It's my job to believe I receive it. And Jesus said I'd have it. He said, every day when I gave myself that shot of insulin, every day when I checked my blood, uh, my sugar levels in my blood or my urine, he said, every day I'd confess, I believe I received my healing from sugar diabetes. He said, every time I would think of it, he said, I'd walk up and down the aisles of the church. They lived in the parsonage right next door to the church, so you could just walk right next door. He said, I spent hours of days saying, I believe I received my healing. I believe I received my healing. And he said, one day, I got in my truck. He was going down. They had a, a, a food pantry type thing in a certain part of the city that was separated from the church. He said, I got in my truck to go down to the food pantry, carrying something in the back. He said, I got into my truck, and somehow or another, a bee came in through the window. 
And the bee was buzzing around at him, so he's starting to swat and everything. He said, somehow or another, the bee got in behind my glasses. That's not where you'd want to be. He said, so I'm slapping my glasses go one direction. The bee goes the other direction. He said, but in the, I'm driving while all this is happening. He said, I'm not paying attention to the road. A bee in your, behind your glasses would probably make you forget about being on the road, wouldn't it? He said, so I ran up over a curb and hit the tree. Well, this was long before anybody had seat belts and stuff like that. So he hit the steering wheel, knocked the breath out of it. He said, there for a minute I couldn't breathe. And he said, I thought that was a goner for sure. He said, but finally I got my breath back and went to the hospital. Doctor wanted to check him out. He hadn't broken anything. He just bruised his sternum on the uh, steering wheel. He said, the doctor, just a small town, same doctor that was um, his personal doctor was involved. So he asked him, he said, uh, are you still taking insulin? He said, yeah. He said, well, let's leave it off for a few days. Well, Brother Hagen, the pastor told Brother Hagen that was three years ago and I haven't had any insulin since. So he didn't even know really how it happened or when it happened. If he hadn't gone to the doctor, he'd still be taking his insulin, I guess. Believing God, mixing faith with it every time he did. So he says, I really don't know when it happened. But that was three years ago, and I hadn't had any more since. Now stop and think about that. 14 years when he could have had his answer if he had just understood. 14 years. Now his, he had had diabetes for 30 years. And somebody might say, well, his pancreas just started producing insulin again. But that's not the way it works, folks. Your body just doesn't all of a sudden correct itself on something like that. So what did it? Well, isn't it an interesting coincidence that he got exactly what he said? He got exactly what he said. Now, in Bible terms, that means God honored his faith. Because what he said was his faith speaking. What he said was his faith speaking. Folks, faith will do anything. Faith will produce everything. If we'll just work it. If we'll just work it. This pastor was late to the party. But he got exactly what he believed for. You can too. Jesus said, all things are possible to him that believes. All things are possible to him that believes. Well, we'll talk more about this next week and as we go along. Thank God for the privilege that we have to know that we have the answer to our prayer even before we see it. Even before we see the results. Well, let's receive communion this morning. Gentlemen, if you guys are ready yourselves, we'll wait upon the people.
The Bible tells us that Jesus instituted this communion at the Passover, the last night that he was with his disciples. The Bible tells us clearly that these elements represent the body and the blood of Jesus. And the Bible also says that we should judge ourselves, which means examine our lives. Examine ourselves according to what we believe. Examine ourselves according to the way that we're living our lives. Certainly if there's sin in our lives, this would be a wonderful time to repent. But even more than that, or along with that, we should examine our lives to see if we're living by what the Word says. These elements represent the freedom that we have because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It represents the fact that he offered his blood as a sacrifice for sin and he offered his body as a sacrifice for sickness and disease. So let's make sure that we're in the right frame of mind when we receive this this morning. Let's spend a few moments with him. Bless you, Father. Thank you for the gift. Bless you, Lord. Has everyone been served? We miss anyone? The Bible tells us that the last night Jesus was here on the earth with his disciples, just before he was taken to the cross, that he said to his disciples that he had looked forward having this Passover meal with his disciples. He told them some marvelous things. He told them about what things would be like after his crucifixion and his resurrection. He told them about being part of the family of God and obtaining eternal life. And he took the bread and he broke it and gave thanks and said, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Well, what is it we're supposed to remember? 
just that he died. No, we're supposed to remember what the word says about why he died the way that he did. The Bible says Jesus took stripes upon his back. And with his stripes, by that punishment, we were healed. So this bread represents healing for our bodies. Because Jesus paid for it. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us. We realize, Father, you've broken every bond of the enemy, including sickness and disease. And we reaffirm our faith that Jesus is our healer. We receive the bread now and the healing that it signifies in the name of Jesus. The Bible says that next Jesus took the cup. He said, this, this cup is the new covenant or new testament in my name. When Jesus went to the cross, he did something that had never been done before. His holy blood, sinless blood, made an eternal sacrifice, brought about an eternal redemption, a removal a wiping away of mankind's sin. Not just covered anymore like they did on the Day of Atonement, but removed. This is why you and I can stand before God, having been made righteous with His righteousness, not our own, and to recognize that we have right standing before Him, just as Jesus does. We are a joint heir with Him. Father, we thank you for this cup and the blood that it signifies. We thank you, Father, that we're washed in the blood of Jesus, made whole, made righteous, eternally righteous, and able to stand before your presence without a sense of condemnation or guilt of any type. We receive this cup now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's lift our hands and thank our Redeemer for what he's done for us. We love you, Lord. We bless your holy name. We thank you that we're redeemed from sin, sickness, and poverty. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Say it with me. I am redeemed from sin. Sickness Sickness. and poverty poverty. in Jesus' name. name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great afternoon. Come on back and be with us for Healing School tonight if you can. And you're dismissed.